Welcome to The Silmarillion Sessions. In this episode, I'm going to discuss Chapter 10 of The Silmarillion of the Sindar. And I'll be going through this chapter, short as it is, by myself this time. This is a bit of an experiment. Schreeder is uh, still with us, of course, but um, he's unavailable for this episode. And for a few uh, future episodes, I think what I'll be doing is going through by myself, especially a few of these earlier Silmarillion chapters, just while Schroeder is getting through things and um, until he becomes available again, uh, I will I will be doing this solo. So again, a bit of an experiment. And I'm sorry if the audio in this one is a little poor um, in places. I am attempting to rectify that, but hopefully, hopefully it won't be too too distracting for you. So please enjoy chapter 10 of the Silmarillion of the Cinder. To begin though, I really want to first talk to you about my recent experience with The Lord of the Rings. Of course, Tolkien's most famous work, uh, which I was rereading after about two years and which I do every two to three years. But this time around, it really struck me. The extent to which the work is heavily mediated through the lens of what I would call a historical situation. Allow me to explain. So we are as readers looking back, I think, onto a sort of vanished landscape, a vanished history, just as the characters in the tale itself look back to the elder days. In all those moments, all those poems, I look back to Baron and Luthien or Turin or, well, usually Baron and Luthien, let's be honest. Occasionally, Earendel. They're looking back to those events, looking back to that history. I think we're doing something similar when we read the book. The novelistic com- comic opening of Lord of the Rings, the famous uh, unexpected, sorry, long expected party, <laughs> does establish a distinct sense of character and place. To be sure, we meet Bilbo, we meet Frodo, etc. But as the story progresses, we are reminded, really in several instances, some of those which I've mentioned, poems, song, that what we are experiencing in the moment of our reading, really, is not something immediate. We're not simply granted a reader's eye view into the lives of Frodo, etc., as we might feel. We are thus granted, for example, when we read about Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, especially when we're sort of given a sense of that character's inner life. What we have instead is something thoroughly compiled, to use a horrible word, manufactured. A text characterised really by its age and its status as a compilation of many sources. We know too from, for example, the note on the Shire Records, that it is a text that has been adapted, shifted and perhaps obtain new meanings in disparate context, for example, in Gondor. That's not to say that it's a postmodern novel in that it is setting out to bedazzle or to confuse or mislead the reader any more than most actual historical texts are, but it does, as I feel like uh, Mike Drought, who's a Tolkien scholar, has said, enjoin us to experience a sense of nostalgic reflection especially in those parts of the narrative 
where characters become aware of their place in the history of the world. For example, Frodo and Sam, of course, of Kirithogol, perhaps the most famous example. But it is still even more than this, I think. I was listening recently to a podcast called Amon Saul, and they had a guest on, Tom Hillman. And he was asking where Frodo's part of the narration ends and where Sam's begins, because, of course, you can see to the Lord of the Rings, the Red Book is supposedly, well, as many people seem to think, it's supposedly written by Frodo and Sam. But I tend to side with a previous interview guest of mine, Vladimir Berliak, who has argued that this actually underreads the shadowy editor's conceit, and I'll speak more about this editor persona soon. But at some point in the transmission of manuscripts, the Red Book is supposedly transmitted in manuscript form, the memoirs, so-called Fred and Sam, seem to have been literarized, or literized, <laughs> depending on which you prefer. That is, they've been transformed into something more conventionally literary, third-person texts, novelistic features. Many of them, uh, as we know from Tolkien studies, going back to sort of medieval antecedents. To be sure, the editor persona does not boldly state this, but then the fictional editor-translator character, per se, is a shadowy presence in the text. This person seems to have written the prologue, even assembled the appendices, assembled the text itself, but we're not really given reasons as to why this occurred. This is the one character in The Lord of the Rings who it seems to me nobody thinks about too much, but who perhaps is the most important character. So is Lord of the Rings then true in the context of the secondary world, to use Tolkien's language? Did Gollum really almost repent to Frodo? Oh no, I'm sorry, Maurer. Because of course there is no Frodo, really is there? There's Maurer, this character of whom we really know nothing but who the translator, the editor-translator, has represented to us as Frodo, this character in the text, to make him essentially um, much more amenable to us. Maura is someone, it seems, who, with whom we might not have much in common, but Frodo? Well, Frodo's, Frodo's a character with whom we can relate. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question, but... Of course, on some level, it depends how you read the text. Do you read it as a novel? Do you read it as a compiled history? You can do both. But if you read the text fully, from the prologue to the appendices, I think you can't do anything. Well, you must at least recognise that there is something else going on. It's not just a novel. It's not just a, a text that's presented to us without elaboration. There's something going on. And perhaps it's part of the conceit, part of the editor's, to use that word again, the editor's conceit, that we must attempt to figure out what's going on. But like real history, of course, there's perhaps not one answer. There's perhaps not an answer to which we can appeal and to which, or with which, everyone will agree. So I want to say more about this. Um, we should get back to the Silmarillion, but I certainly feel that there is something to be said, or at least more to be said, for this idea of the metaphysical conceit in The Lord of the Rings. 
and it's certainly something that this podcast is interested in exploring. So I will say more about this in the future, but do let me know if you've had similar reading experiences. What do you think about the prologue? Have you read the prologue? Have you read the appendices? What do you think about them? And how do you read them? I'd be interested to know. Returning to the Silverillion, though, we are, of course, looking at chapter 10 of the Cinder. And, you know, returning to the Silmarillion now, having reread Lord of the Rings, is a bit like returning to Deuteronomy, say, after reading the Gospel of John. One is a text of florid detail, in part at least. The other is to focus on, you know, other matters, let's say. Um, it's not quite that extreme. Um, but for its occasional dryness, the Silmarillion does retain uh, an august, if distant, kind of beauty, like some of those books of the Bible. And, um, you know, that's part of what gives it some of that power. That sense that all of this is kind of disappearing, even as we read it, even in the act of reading, Lothlorien is disappearing, receding into the past. Even as we read it, the hobbits themselves, as the translator-editor remarks in the prologue, now are really seeing people. But anyway, we learn here in this chapter, of course, that Thingol and Melian have not been idle during the time that we've, in the narrative, been over in Valinor. A sophisticated relationship, mostly commercial, it seems, has developed in Beleriand um, between the dwarves and elves, as the Sindar and the elves of the Blue Mountains. The relationship may not be friendly per se, but it is amicable enough and culminates in, of course, the construction of Menegroth, Fingal's great underground cave complex. Perhaps one of the most beautiful descriptions, passages in the book, which I'm going to read. So, on page 101 of my uh, edition, HarperCollins, the text reads, Therefore the Nalgrim laboured long gladly for Thingol, and devised for him mansions after the fashion of their people, delved deep in the earth, where the Eskelduin flowed down and parted Neldoreth from Region. There rose in the midst of the forest a rocky hill, and the river ran at its feet. There they made the gates of the Hall of Thingol, and they built a bridge of stone over the river, by which alone the gates could be entered. Beyond the gates, wide passages ran down the high halls and chambers far below that were hewn in the living stone, so many and so great that the dwelling was named Menegroth, the Thousand Caves. But the elves also had a part in that labour, and elves and dwarves together, each with their own skill, there wrought out the visions of Melian, images of the wonder and beauty of Valinor beyond the sea. The pillars of Menegroth were hewn in the likeness of the beaches of Aromi, stock, bough, and leaf, and they were lit with lanterns of gold. The nightingale sang there, as in the gardens of Lorien, and there were fountains of silver, and basins of marble, and floors of many coloured stones. Carven figures of beasts and birds there ran upon the walls, or climbed upon the pillars, or peered among the branches entwined with many flowers. 
And as the years passed, Melian and her maidens filled the halls with woven hangings wherein could be read the deeds of the Valar, and many things that had befallen Arda since its beginning, and shadows of things that were yet to be. That was the fairest dwelling of any king that has ever been east of the sea. Now, I think that's beautiful and triumphant as a passage. It's really, really gorgeous. But of course, the peace is soon tested. Orcs peer and harass the twilight forests. The Lyaquendi, green elves, are beset and retreat to Assyrian. Things begin already before the coming of the sun and the moon, which we'll get to in the next chapter, to seem unquiet and, of course, a little disturbed. But then a kind of fake eucatastrophe occurs at the conclusion of the chapter. Feanor returns to Middle-earth. We will see that some of the, um, the Sindar mistake this as a genuine gesture of succour, the Noldor returning to provide aid. And in some sense, the Silmarillion is really about, or at least partially about, the unravelling of the myth of the virtuous Noldor. In this way, the Silmarillion allows that the so-called noble characters also bear some weight of moral guilt for their actions. Where in The Lord of the Rings, this is somewhat sublimated, I think, in the narrative, except in the appendices, where a more Silmarillion-like schema may be seen. So, for example, Rohan is not only an imperiled ally of Gondor, but is partially culpable, at least, partially culpable actor in the oppression of the Dunlendings. And this, in the text of The Lord of the Rings, this kind of moral culpability on the part of the so-called good guys is a little sublimated. It's there, but it's not the focus of the narrative, which is an interesting topic in its own right. But anyway, to return to the Sindar, they, I think, are an interesting example of a distinct people in Middle-earth, elevated as they are by proximity to the divine, but also, as we've seen, um, by the more prosaic matter of, of commerce and, um, in quotation marks, international relations. It's really the Noldor, and not so much the Orcs, who disrupt this arrangement, or at least put the Sindar in, we might say, a difficult um, geostrategic position vis-a-vis their own claims to the lands and the commerce of Beleriand, which we'll see in the next few chapters. The narrative in this chapter, I think, is thus setting up a complex of alliances, uh, forces and um, nations, if we want to use that expression, um, here and and, and with competing claims on Beleriand and its realms, as we'll see. There is no ring against which the forces of the moral energy of the so-called free peoples um, can, can rally. Instead, as I've mentioned, the conflict is sublimated. Um, in Lord of the Rings, um, but is here sort of on full display, I think. This gives the Silmarillion in general a distinct character to Lord of the Rings. And whatever your thoughts on ideas like eucatastrophe, um, the moral order is here less distinct, I think. In such a world, the interventions of the gods are perhaps less acutely to be hoped for. But that is a topic turn to as we continue our odyssey into the Silmarillion. So it's a short one for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening. Do follow us on Substack at Reading Tolkien and also on Twitter at Reading Tolkien. <laughs> um, I think the Twitter handle is at PodReading. And next time, of course, we'll talk about the sun and moon, or of the sun and moon, 
perhaps the most mythological chapter in the Silmarillion. So do let me know what you think and if you'd like me to elaborate on any of the points I've raised in this particular entry. So hopefully I'll return soon with Schroeder, but uh, for the moment um, I'm going to do a few of these and go through a few of these earlier chapters in the Silmarillion as kind of solo performances, as it were, and then we will also um, discuss things as we go along. So thank you for listening and I'll see you around.